If you were with us over the past several weeks as we walked through Ephesians chapter 2, we took that kind of bite by bite, and we were there for like four weeks. Paul, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, is explaining what happened to the people who, occupy, who make up the church at Ephesus when they trusted Jesus Christ by faith. So back in, in chapter 1, Paul said to them, um, when I heard about your faith, I began praying some specific things for you. And then in chapter 2, he talks about what happened when these people uh, ceased to trust in themselves and began trusting in Christ, what we would call salvation, what, what transpired in their souls under the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, look, prior to faith, we were children of wrath. We were, we were bent in on ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. And then Paul says what came with that spiritual death was slavery, enslaved to our passions and our desires. Uh, all of us were kind of held captive by our drives. But, but beyond that, he said, we were following the ways of the world, the power of the prince that is now at work in the world, the sons of disobedience. And so prior to faith in Christ, human beings are sort of locked in to just going with the flow of the world. We just kind of adopt and adapt to whatever the cultural norms and expectations are around us. And we rarely question those things. We rarely reevaluate those things. We just kind of go with the flow. And so Paul says, but God is rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. It's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast. And, and so that, that pivot, that, that transition is that we're no longer enslaved to our desires and our drives, nor are we seduced and held captive to by the, the, the ways of the world. Now, what does that have to do with 1 John? John, the apostle, is writing some two or three decades after Paul, most likely, and he's most likely writing from Ephesus. And he's writing to a church that's had some time to grow. The, the church in Ephesus Paul's writing to, or those are all new Christians, and he's explaining to them the faith. But now they're, they're a few decades down the road, and so John writes perhaps back to the same church, or at least to the church in general, but from Ephesus, and he starts addressing some of the same things that Paul was telling the church in the book of Ephesians. In fact, the, the church has come to adapt or co-opt some false teaching. And so John says, instead of like, Paul, here's what happened when you were saved. He's like, here's what we've, we need to tell you about now. This is how you grow in the faith. This is what it looks like to, to mature in your capacity to follow Jesus and to be like him. So John says things like, look, if you continue in sin then you're a liar. The hope of the gospel is not in you. But if you say you don't sin, you're also lying to yourself because we all wrestle with sin. The difference is not that we become sinless and perfect. The difference is that we become honest. And he says, we walk in the light with one another. Therefore, we have fellowship with one another. John goes on to say that in so doing, we show ourselves to be children of God. We're no longer given to the darkness, but we now walk in the light. And then here in chapter two and at the beginning of chapter three, where we're gonna look at this morning, he essentially says, look, you can't love the world. You've been set free from slavery and captivity to the world, but this seduction of the world, the, 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 the default mechanism of the human heart to just kind of go with the flow and do what everyone else is doing and live in a way that's in, in the approval of all other men and women around you, that, that, that's a seductive thing. And the battle that we all fight is over the battle of love. Do you love the world or do you love the Father? And then in chapter three, he says, and I got good news for you. We're children of God. We've been been given this, this right and this privilege so that we will be different in the world. 
So that's what I want to look at today and what we're going to press into. What does it look like to break free, not just from enslavement to the world, but from the, from the enticements of the world, to, to be free from the allure of just kind of getting what we want in this life, that the fixation or the, the delusion of the good life that we all aspire to that looks rather worldly. So read with me, if you will, in, in 1 John, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read verses 15 through 17, then we'll skip down to chapter 3 and look at the first three verses there. Uh, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Down in chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. So next week marks for uh, my wife and I 17 years that, that we've been here, uh, which is crazy to think. We had a, a one-year-old and the two of us when we moved here, and now we got three kids, and which also means I'm going to have an 18-year-old next week. So... Thoughts and prayers appreciated. Direct them our way. Um, and, and so as, as we've thought, as I think about that, I think, man, a lot has, has transpired. And, um, you know, one of the things I think back on is the church that I, I left when we came here, when Living Hope called us uh, to, to, to be on, on pastoral staff here. We were, I was pastoring a small church just north of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, I, I thought of a story just recently. Of, it was around this time of year. We were getting together, and we were going to, with a young adult married class, so kind of our peeps at the time, uh, we, we were going to get together. Do people still say peeps? I don't think so, but moving on. Uh, so we were going to get together with them and do like a chili cook-off, because I, I like to make chili, and some of the other guys did, and we were going to kind of have a competition. And so we, I think we had a text thread going, if text threads existed in 2006, but, uh, and it was like, okay, I'll bring the chili, and someone says, okay, I'll bring the hot dogs, and someone says, I got the buns, and someone says, okay, I'll bring Fritos, and I got the cheese, and then towards the end of the, the list of people signed up to bring stuff, one of the girls said, I'll bring the cinnamon rolls, and I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of weird, but perhaps it's just for dessert, so shout out to her for doing that, and she's a really sweet girl, so I thought, that, that's lovely, so we, we show up, we're all getting our bowl of chili, and, and I look over, and the girl who volunteered to bring the cinnamon rolls has her chili bowl, and she walks over to the cinnamon rolls, and she puts a cinnamon roll in her chili bowl. Yeah, then she goes over to the chili and begins ladling chili on top of it, and my wife and I look at each other like, what is going on? This is how we knew we weren't called to serve these people much longer. They're the Ninevites, get me out of here, O oh Lord. Who does this, the chili or cinnamon rolls? This is an offense to the Most High God. And so, so we look at each other, and she's, like I said, super sweet girl. I didn't want to, like, call her out or anything. And I look around, and no one else is weirded out by this violence that's occurring. And, and so she keeps putting chili on, so she goes and sits down. And finally, I was like, okay, I got to say something. Like, I can't just let this pass. And so I was like, hey, uh, her name is Kara again, super sweet lady. I was like, hey, Kara, did you really just put a cinnamon roll in a bowl and put chili on top of it? And she was like, yeah. And then some of the other people kind of chuckled, and I looked at them, and I'm like, anyone want to step in here? You're going to make me be the bad guy. Like, someone needs to call this, you know, debauchery out. And 
the other people sitting around were like, no, uh, they kind of laughed. And one of them said, well, you, you didn't grow up here. They said, okay, in our school, elementary school, middle school, high school, when the cafeteria served chili on chili day, they also served cinnamon rolls. And so it was kind of common in our school that when folks would be served chili, they would take the cinnamon roll, either dip it in there or just dunk it in. And I was like, that's a problem. This is, our education system is broken if your teacher's allowed you to do this. Now, I say that as an Oklahoman who makes chili in a very Oklahoma type way. I put my chili in the bowl. I top it with cheese. Usually if there's some onions or uh, jalapenos, I'll put that on then. And then I put a layer of Fritos on top. And then on top of the Fritos, yellow mustard. Anyone else do this? Hey, no, don't knock it if you haven't tried it, right? That's the right way. That's the way you do that. Now, I did that because that, you know, in the the trailer park. That's how you made your chili pie. It came out of a can, Frito chili pie. You put your Wolf brand chili in a crock pot, you let it heat up, and then you douse your Fritos. And what better condiment in the trailer park than yellow mustard? Because that's the only condiment. And so that's the way we ate it. Now, why did I tell you that crazy story? Because uh, what was normal to them, what was culturally acceptable, was deeply offensive to me and just plain gross. Like folks from Cincinnati who put their chili on spaghetti. That's a different kind of broken and wrong. Some of y'all in the room probably too. But, but what we do is we have our way of doing things. We have this accepted norm and no one over, you know, a particular period of time questions it anymore. It's just the way we do it. And, and so for them in that particular town, chili on a cinnamon roll was an acceptable practice. It was deeply offensive and gross to me, but yet the way I eat it to y'all is probably gross and so on and so forth. Ever so far it devolves. Now, that is, I think, what's at stake when Paul is talking about being going along with the way of the world or what John is talking about here, about the love of the world. There's an accepted norm in whatever culture we occupy of practices and habits that are opposed to the things of God that never really come under consideration as though they're antithetical to our design by God himself made in his image. And so we just go along with it. And John says here that the real dilemma is that we not only go along with it, we don't see how we're tempted or inclined towards it. We're not self-reflective. We're not bringing our, our, our impulses, our, our wants, our ambitions under the microscope of God's great love and allowing the love of God to reform or reshape our loves. So I said this when we studied Ephesians chapter 2. I said the primary battle we all fight is at the level of faith. And that, I, I believe that to be true. But, but it's very closely related to the battle that we fight around our loves. You become what you love. What, what your affections are set on, what your ambitions, your de- desires, your aspirations fixate upon, that, that love is not just a compelling force in your life. It's a life-shaping reality. Our loves form us. They, they, they direct our, our habits, they direct our, the way we spend our time, the, the things that we hope for or aspire to. And, and John and Paul both agree, to the church in Ephesus at least, if that is not being directed or, or analyzed, it's going along with the ways of the world. So the question is, how then do we become a people who, who are not seduced by the ways of the world? How then do we become a people who can be self-reflective, who can be repentant, repentant in the best sense of the world, that we've considered the ways of the wor- world and we've decided God's way and God's, God's will is better. So we turn from that way and, and walk in the way that God would have us walk. How do we become holy and pure? How are we set free from the ways of the world? 
That's what I want to show you today that John talks about here. Paul says we are liberated. We were enslaved. We had no other option in, in Ephesians chapter 2, but God made us alive together with Jesus Christ. It's by grace we're saved through faith. Now John comes along and says, but we can still be seduced. We can still be enticed. The world can still lure us in. It can still uh, play to this default position of the heart that left to itself will aspire to all of these sideways ways of doing things. So how then, how do we break free from that cycle? How do we stop becoming like the world? How are we no longer conformed to the image of the world, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, but instead are transformed by the renewal of our minds? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Three quick things. The first one is simply this. John tells us if we want to get off the treadmill of being like the world, we've got to recognize our temptations. We've got to recognize the ways that we're tempted. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, he says it like this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is something that John does all throughout this letter. I would encourage you to go home and read it today. You can read 1 John in one sitting. It won't take you very long. But he sets up a lot of contrasts, darkness and light. You walk in the light, you won't walk in darkness. If you walk in darkness, you're not going to walk in the light. If you love the world, you can't love God. And if you love God, you're not going to be in love with the things of the world. He sets up this either-or binary all throughout this letter so as to get people to be self-reflective and say, which direction am I headed? And you can't simultaneously go in two opposite directions. you got to pick one. And so here he says your loves are oriented either towards the direction of the world or they're oriented towards the direction of God himself. And, and where that kind of comes to a, a crescendo is at the level of temptation. Verse 15, don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, and here it is, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desire. So the, the world has an angle. The world has a, an ambition. The world has a hope. Paul says that, that thing is dying off. The world is not going to make it through into the next world, the new heaven and the new earth. And whoever wants to do the will of the Father needs to turn now. How do you do that? You look at these three areas of temptation. I think John gives us what I would call the unholy trinity of temptations. They show up from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For instance, and if in Genesis chapter 3, what's typically called the fall, when Adam and Eve are seduced into sin by the serpent and told to question or ask questions about what God has said and in so doing uh, bring brokenness and sin and, into creation itself, it happens that it says that when Eve saw the fruit, she saw that it was, it, was, it was a delight to the eyes, it looked good to eat, and it would make one wise. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, Jesus, in, the, in Matthew chapter 4, when he's led away into the wilderness by the Spirit, he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's passing the test that all of humanity and Israel specifically had failed in the desert. It says that the devil came to him, and the first temptation was the devil said, take the stones and turn them into bread. Lust of the flesh, you're hungry, you need to eat. He says, secondly, look, go up to the top of the temple, look down and throw yourself down. Make a spectacle so that the angels have to come and res rescue you. Make a big deal about yourself, the lust of the eyes. And then he takes him out, observes from the mountain of God, all the kingdoms of the earth, and Satan says to him, you can have all of these things, the pride of life. You can have all the stuff that you want. You can be whoever you want to be. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. 
So what do those mean? I think when John brings them up and the way we need to reflect on them as it pertains to following the ways of the world is we just need to press in and consider how are we tempted in these ways? The lust of the flesh is about sensuality. And I don't, when you hear that, you probably think sexuality, and I do think that that's a part of it. So places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul talks about how our, our sexual desires are, are, are broken until they're restored in Christ. And he says, such were some of you, but now on the other side of faith, you got to reconsider. You were bought with a price. Your body is no longer your own. So you can't go around trying to glorify self and sexual appetite through, through sexual deviance. Instead, you, you're to be different. So, so sensuality applies to that, but I think sensuality, when we're talking about the lust of the flesh, is just about having the senses enticed. The ways that you and I go about pursuing things that will bring us some fleeting momentary pleasure. It's easy for some of us to see something like the lust of the flesh to categorize that simply as sexual deviance and then to be like, that's not my issue, so I don't commit that sin. I'm not tempted in those ways. But, but that's not all that's going on there. But, Little Debbie makes a lot of money selling things because of the lust of the flesh. Oatmeal cream pies. There's nothing nutritional about that. It's not helping you get along with life, but it'll make you feel good for a minute, right? And so the lust of the flesh can be really any number of, of things that we can relieve and say are good things in some respects, but it's good things that we turn into God things, and then they become enslaving things. It's the, the reason that your pantry may be stocked with Little Debbie's or your wine cellar stopped, stocked to the brim or why your search history on your computer reflects what it reflects, right? The lust of the flesh. These, light, these momentary issues of, of, of self-satisfaction that bring some measure of pleasure, but it's fleeting, it's not lasting. I've been reading a lot of Arthur Brooks lately. He's a Harvard professor whose main area of study is on the issue of happiness. I think he's a believer, so some of the stuff he says is quite insightful. But he talks about how human beings tend to, people who tend to show up later in life as, as more content or more happy are people who chase satisfaction rather than pleasure. And what he says is, and he says that even the brain science backs this up, pleasure is something, it's a, it's a dopamine hit that we get. It's a it's a little bit of a neuro cocktail that floods through our brains, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, that we get when we get a small reward. And that can be anything from, from sexual pleasure to, to numbing out with alcohol or even just watching your favorite show or buying something. Black Friday is kind of a part of this, you know? And he says the problem with, with the pleasure loop, though, is that you get a little bit of a hit of pleasure, and then usually what got you the first hit isn't enough to sustain you through the second, third, and out into infinity with whatever number of other pleasure hits you need. And so he says it's especially dangerous if, for people to pursue pleasure in isolation, because if you pursue pleasure in isolation, that becomes addiction. And almost all forms of addiction happen because we're pursuant of pleasure isolated from other people. So we're looking for that hit, and it just keeps coming around, coming around. And it's a degenerative cycle that we find ourselves on. Satisfaction, on the other hand, is something that comes only on the other side of hard work. It comes on the other side of pain. Usually someone has to go through some pretty serious experience to get to satisfaction. The pursuit of satisfaction, though, is costly. And most folks will choose pleasure over satisfaction any day. Now, I'm told, I'm told that some runners have this thing called a runner's high, that at some point, at some mile marker, your brain releases brain chemicals and you're like, oh, this feels great. I'm glad that I did this. I've never experienced this. I think it's a lie from the pit of hell. I've run a long ways before and it never happened. So I'm like, this is not true. But apparently, that's maybe what satisfaction feels like. It's on the other side. Now, here's the dilemma. We're tempted 
We're, we're allured, we're enticed by the devil himself and the world in general to believe that we can just keep pursuing pleasure in these light and momentary ways, or so we think they're light and momentary, uh, and we'll be fine with it. But the problem is, eventually, it, it hooks us, and the lust of the flesh begins to consume us, and so we run for pleasure or even just numbness. We don't want to feel anything, because what we feel is bad, so I don't want to feel at all. Uh, folks who've gone through any sort of recovery knows the, the acronym HALT. They realize that whenever they are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, they are ever so vulnerable and susceptible to the lust of the flesh. The, the, the church could learn a lot from that. So lust of the flesh is one thing, but then, then John says the lust of the eyes is another. That's something that maybe we don't consider enough. Lust of the eyes being this, this fixation towards um, accumulation and consumption. It's, it's, it's what, it's what uh, Solomon talks about, I believe, in Ecclesiastes when he says, I looked out and surveyed the kingdoms of the world and I denied myself nothing, thinking that it would fill me up, but it was all meaninglessness. So we, we peer out at the world and we want to accumulate and consume, accumulate and consume. It can be possessions. It can be experiences. By the way, um, this, this particular susceptibility, this particular temptation, the, the lust of the eyes, I think is um, really just metastasizes on social media. I'm not banging on social media this morning. I'm not here to you know, throw that in the ditch. There's some beneficial things. You can, you know, good stuff can happen through that. But it can also be a trap towards the lust of the eyes. I see what other people have, and I want it for myself. I'm all up in everyone else's business because they're always updating me about what they did today, and so I feel like I'm informed. Or I can even post things and get likes so I feel seen. And this particular dilemma is the trap door through which we walk into either envy or greed, two sins that tend to take us down. Envy is not, I want all the things. Envy is just, I want the things that you have. Greed is, I'm never happy with the things I got. I want more things. I don't care what you have. I just want more. And those two particular sins happen in the human heart primarily through the temptation of the lust of the eyes, always gazing out, always being fixated on what we don't have or what we want. And these come along and trip us, up, trip us up, and so we don't consider or reconsider the ways of the world. We think that habitual consumption and accumulation is just the way everyone lives. And it's much like putting a cinnamon roll in the bottom of your chili, chili bowl and ladling it on top. Not everyone does live like that, but we never reconsider it because the lust of the eyes. And then finally, John talks about the pride of life. The pride of life, really, I think if you look at the scriptures and the way that temptation works, is it's just a lust for authority or power. It's this desire to be in charge. It's the assumption that if I get to call the shots, the world will be a better place because I, after all, am, am wise and informed. And it's this particular lust that puts us on a, on a treadmill towards always having to accomplish, always having to win, always having to be right. It's the, the fixation of, of, of the heart to say, if I can just get another few initials after my name, then I'll be accepted and loved. If I can just get a few more bullet points on my CV, then I'll win. If I get the promotion, if I get it to have some control over the department, if I get more market share, I'm, I'm good. I've arrived. The pride of life. I mentioned this before, but it's the difference between uh, eulogy values and resume values, as one writer puts it. Many of us pursue resume values, things that look good on our resume that kind of build us up, when in fact the life we're called to are eulogy values. <laughs> things that should be said of us at our funeral. But the pride of life says, no, just work on the resume. Conquer, defeat, win at all costs. So of these three, I would ask you this morning, which temptation tends to bring you down? 
Which temptation do you flee self-reflection on? Where it's just easier to go along with the way of the world. It's easier to just cave into the lust of the flesh because I can escape for a minute. I can, I can numb out. I don't got to think about the things that are pressing on me. I don't got to deal with the hard stuff. Is it the lust of the eyes? I can just look out at the world, set my fixation on what someone else has, or even aspire to be seen myself. Is it the pride of life? Are you driven compulsively to try to get more, have more, have more power, more control? Which one trips you up? Because John's saying here, if the church can't recognize where these temptations show up, then our loves are at stake. And when our loves are at stake, we end up loving the wrong things. At heart, that means we're, we become idol worshipers. We worship good things, we make them into God things, and then become enslaving things, and they take us down. And N.T. Wright's commentary on this passage, he says it like this. He says, the command to not love the world refers not to the physical stuff of this world, but to the world as it is in rebellion against God. The world as the combination of things that draw us away from God. The flesh, the eyes, life itself, all can become idols. And like all idols, they demand more and more from those who worship them. The heart of idol worship is that there's something that it's, it's offering us the opportunity to get out of the false hell that we think that we're living in. So if, if it's the lust of the flesh, the false hell that I think that I'm living in is just this, I'm bored or there's some pain in my life. And then it promises us a, a false heaven. We get pleasure so we can get out of this false hell and get into this false heaven. But the cost is always enslavement. And so if it's the lust of the eyes, I, I live in this false hell of, you know, my, my house isn't big enough, my car is not new enough, whatever the thing may be. But the false heaven is the, the ad, the, the, the intended ad that showed up in Instagram. It says, if you get these shoes, I mean, you, you've made it. Right now, they're two for one. You know, if you, if you go and hit the Black Friday deal, even though it was the same price two weeks ago, don't tell them that, you're going to feel some measure of comfort and joy for a moment. It's if you do get the promotion and he or she doesn't. And so it gets us out of a false hell, it sells us on a false heaven, but it never lasts, whatever that false heaven is, and we become enslaved in the process. It's a treadmill we can't get off of. So John calls the church to be self-reflective on these things. Anyone who loves the world or the things of the world does not have the love of the Father in them. you got to pick. Now, the good news is what John says next, though. If we recognize our temptations, the way out of this is not by trying harder or doing better. It's by receiving the love of God that is ours right now. And go back and look at chapter 3, verse 1, and see the way that John writes this. See what kind of love the Father, here it is, has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So John says that the, the issue at heart, literally at heart, is what we love, what we chase after, what, what our ambitions are, are taken up with. And the, 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 the way to jump off of the, the demented ways of the world is to see how great it is that God has given us love. We don't have to earn it. It's not conditional. He's poured it out on us. It's what we spent four weeks studying in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead and we were made alive. We were orphaned and we, we became adopted. We were aliens and foreigners and he made us citizens and co-heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance that is coming. And to the extent that those truths get down into our heart, it reformats what it is we actually love so that we don't love the world or the things in the world. John tells us that God's love is given to us freely. It's not conditional. 
We didn't. This is why Paul says it's by grace we're saved through faith so that no one can boast. None, none of us were able to earn this love. God gave it to us while we were still sinners. Romans chapter 5, rarely will a man die for a good man, let alone a, a, an enemy. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's absolutely, totally, and completely free. So I spent the last couple of years studying family systems theory and one of the things that we talk about in that world about why dysfunction shows up in our families is often because we can't seem to get our minds around the fact that all love isn't conditional. It's, it's why broken relationships emerge in family relationships all the time. We think that we've got to earn a, a person's love. We think that we just do the things. We check all the boxes. If we live up to the expectations, somehow we'll have a harmonious relationship at the end of the day. But the problem is that's not the way love works. And that's what it means, I think, when John here is saying we can't love the world or the things in the world. That's the way love in the world works. It's all conditional. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And then he has the audacity to tell the church, made up of sinners, who made all sorts of blatant sins and errors probably in the last couple of days prior to receiving the letter, beloved, he calls them. The love that you've been given is not because of something you've done. It's because of who God is. It's because Christ is poured it out abundantly on you. You are beloved. God's love is towards you. Later on in this chapter, we don't have time for this morning, but John will say, this is how we know what love is. The very definition of the word itself, Christ died for us. That, that's love's, it loves commerce, love traffics and sacrifice. And there's no greater sacrifice that anyone has ever paid than Jesus Christ himself. And so it's given freely. Not only that, it's available to us now. I love that John emphasizes the love the Father has given to us, and so we are. Past tense into present tense. He goes even further. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. It is settled. It's not debatable. And if the church has that kind of love poured out on them, then that type of love is meant to reorder, reformat, reorient the love that we have for things and stuff. If we have that kind of love and we'll never get it through what we accumulate and consume or fleeting moments of pleasure or getting enough power or control, if that's the kind of love that we now currently possess, we can give up the ridiculous fight over all of the stupid stuff that we chase after, like the world. And so the love of God is meant to be this meditative force in the heart of the church, such that the church changes the things that she loves, the things that she aspires and hopes to, the things that she pines for or runs after. And, and it's, it's only when we fixate on the love of God for us. It's why we go through a liturgy every week at Living Hope where we confess our sins and we receive absolution because we once again need to be reminded. It's why God gave us the Lord's day every seven days because it only takes six days for me to forget how much God loves me and for me to revert back to chasing after the things that the world tells me will give me love. So God built into the system of the church a way for us to be reminded and reoriented around his love. Now, the best illustration I could come up for this this week was from Shakespeare. But you didn't have that on your bingo card, Gib quoting Shakespeare after talking about Trailer Park Chili. You know, like, I'm going there. We're doing Sonnet 29 this morning. It would be much better, as I'll just admit this, if I was a trained actor, if I had a British accent, I'm probably going to butcher this. I don't have either, neither, I think is the Shakespearean way to say it. But you need to hear this poem because the beauty of it, if you can let it sink in, tells the story of how love can reorient our direction and our hopes for life itself. Sonnet 29, Shakespeare writes, When in disgrace with fortune in man's eyes, 
I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate. Wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, happily I think on thee and then my state. Like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings. You probably had to read that your freshman year in college or junior year of high school. You probably, like me, you thought, I don't know what he's talking about, but I got to pass the test. So let me do my best to summarize it. He says, when I look out on the world and I see what everyone else has, this man's art, that man's scope, I start to despise my hapless state and eventually despise myself. But then he says, I'm awakened to the love that I now currently possess. And to the extent that you can be awakened to the love that you now currently possess, you would not change your state with kings. You've been given privileges and rights as a child of God. You are adopted. You're, you're called his own. And that's the only way out of the cycle of idolatry. It's the only way the human heart stops fixating on all these other aspirations, goals, or hopes that the world says will satisfy us, but never has once happened in all of human history. That's why I think the way John wraps this up is that we have to remember our one lasting hope. He says at the end of this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when, when he, when we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John says three things. What we have has not yet appeared. That's why we've got to talk about falling in love with the world. We're not in heaven yet. We're in the already and the not yet state. Already are we adopted? Already are we citizens? Yes. Not yet do we fully realize that. And so the allure, the, the, the seduction of the world is always beckoning at our door. So what we have has not yet appeared. But we do have something right now. What we do have right now is the love of God, and we have the vision or the image that we will one day be like Jesus. Maybe the best way to say it is what Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 2. We have been saved from sin's penalty. We are no longer children of wrath. We are being saved from sin's power. Sin, we're no longer enslaved to the ways of this world. And one day, as John is saying here, we'll be saved entirely from sin's presence. We'll be whole and complete. And so the season of Advent that we're getting ready to lean into is a season of retuning our hearts to look towards that future hope, to once again have our loves shaped by the hope that we have in Christ and then have that hope result in our lives like purity. He says, one day we'll be like him, so let's start rehearsing now. Let's start practicing now. Let's look at the life and the manners and the habits of Jesus and let's adopt and adapt that strategy for our life now because one day it's gonna be the reality that we live into fully and finally and completely in a new heaven and a new earth. Why not rehearse now? So Father, to that end, would your hope once again break into our lives? Would the love that you've given us once again break into our hearts? So as to help us jump off this endless cycle of infatuation with things that will never satisfy us, letting go of the small pleasures that, that often enslave us, and by repentance and faith, once again, being renewed in your love. And let us look towards the day when Christ returns for us. 
when we feast with him, when we will one day be filled up fully, totally, and completely and free from sin. Until that day, God, let us turn from the ways of the world and walk with you in love. In Jesus' name, amen.